0: Hello and welcome to History Reconsidered, a podcast dedicated to taking a deep dive into historical issues and events and relating them to the modern world. I'm your host, Jarrett Stepman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sumatra Mitra. And on this week's episode, we actually get to the second part of our three-part series. This episode will be about the rise of Napoleon, the beginning of the great man's career, the great Frenchman's career, And, and Sumatra, I think, to kind of start off this conversation, we, we talked about this before, and I think it is very important, because we're talking about Napoleon, who's one of the most significant figures in history, you know, sort of the father of modern Europe in a certain sense. Uh, we really have to talk about this idea about the great man theory of history, which I think is in many ways fallen out of favor, certainly in academia, but used to be a very popular concept, certainly in the 19th century and the early 20th century, and I think it I think before we get into this conversation about Napoleon's career, we really have to get into this idea of the great man theory of history, what it means and how it relates to Napoleon.
1: Yeah, you're right. So fundamentally, uh, because of the post 60s idea and uh, of behavioralism in social science, we kind of like started to uh, to focus on more on the structural boundaries and how structure defines history, like all these Kind of like interpersonal forces colliding against each other, as Kenneth Waltz talked about the the billiards ball theory of of social science. Essentially, looks like a snooker table with different balls just striking against each other, and that's how <laughs> its things are created. Which makes a lot of sense. It is at the end of the day, materialistic uh, idea of of determining history, but it kind of ignores the factor of agency of human agency. Now, uh, obviously, that's a uh, that's that's like the pendulum swimming too much to the other side um in the 19th even before in the, in the in the 18th century uh the, the predominant idea was that humans extremely powerful humans with their sheer force of will and character and and virtue can change the direction of course of history which is the which was you know thomas carlyle i'm talking about napoleon Carlyle, in his biography, uh, or in, in, his, in his book about the French Revolution, fundamentally mentioned about Napoleon and how he was such a force of nature. And he essentially, because of his own, you know, he's coming from a very normal, uh, you know, background, but changing the entire direction of history. And that in itself, the great man theory of history, like there's this, this if, if there, there could be one man who would change uh, and, and go against the tide at times to, to you know, put his mark on history. The question, however, is whether great men or women, so to speak, um, are great in the sense they're good and they're virtuous, or whether they're great in the sense they are so massive that because of their sheer gravity, they, they change the direction of the flows of, of, of time and space around them. So. Uh, overall, the the modern idea of great man theory of history, and in in which Napoleon is obviously one of the leading contenders, is this idea that you don't need to be good, in a sense, to be one of the great men. You can be flawed, but as long as you have that sheer gravity of changing the dynamic of history around you, you are great, so to speak, because on your shoulders the forces of history are residing
0: yeah absolutely it's, it's interesting. of course you bring up uh thomas Carlyle, who was a very prominent 19th century um historian who wrote about number of figures and had a lot of theories about i guess more formally came up with the great man theory of history as we think of it i think he had even a series of lectures i want to say on heroes and the heroic in history i think he i think he mentioned like uh uh religious figures who are the great man. So this doesn't necessarily have to be a politician. It could be religious figures. It could be men of letters. It could be in various uh, uh, endeavors that kind of move the events uh, of human affairs. And I think you're right in the sense that um, I think part of the, the great man theory of history does sort of some say, you know, they kind of transcend even traditional morality as in you can't fully know the mind of the, the great man and how he moves events. And it's difficult for us mere mortals to fully understand them. And you, you do see that in some of the scholarship of the late 19th century. There's this kind of idea that this, you know, the human will of these great men of genius uh, really comes every once in a while and directs events that's beyond us to fully understand. And um, I, I think there's something to be said, of course, you know, as we discussed, you know, there there is a certain element of a bottom-up history. Obviously, any one of these men, you 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 drop them into, uh, you know, the Stone Age, and they're not going to do much of anything. I mean, what is a man outside of his society and outside the time and place in which he is? I think Napoleon is as much of, if, if there's any single individual in history who maybe fulfills the idea of the great man, it is somebody like Napoleon, but would Napoleon have been Napoleon? Had he not been born at a time in which there were great events happening in the world, uh, just right after the French Revolution, after all the chaos that it caused, opening up an opportunity for a very young officer to step into a role in which he would have never gotten otherwise. Before the Revolution, he probably would have just been a minor league officer, may have had a short career in the military, uh, and then would have had to go on to other endeavors. You know, Maybe he would have been successful. Maybe he would have made his mark on history. Uh, but the fact is, he did step into a world that where great events were happening uh, and, of course, showed the fact that he was uh, a military genius and administrative genius, among other things. And so I think there's a, a little bit of both going on. Certainly, uh, history is you know a series of great men who, who've conducted events, but there's a lot going on around that, and I think we have to recognize that as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's that famous Carlyle quote, which is there in the in the Jefferson Building of the Library of Congress. Uh, if you if you go up and you see all the all the big quotes on the on the in front of the windows, and one of the quotes was like the it's actually in my um, cover photo of my Twitter. Um, the, bio, the history of the world is the biography of great men, and that's that's <laughs> that's the fundamental crux of great man theory. But you're absolutely right. I personally don't think that you know the sheer you know the Nietzschean idea of, of you know, uber mensch and you know people just changing history because of the sheer force of will well yeah i mean there we don't we shouldn't ignore the fact that men and women and there are some men and women who are better than and superior than the others and they have you know their respective way of, of changing history but i also do think you're absolutely right i mean if you a man is at the end of the day a creature of society and you're, you're right napoleon uh was this is one of them this is fundamentally one of the biggest debates that whether Napoleon was great or Napoleon was lucky um and i think we're going to get into that anyway um he was certainly born uh in a in a very minor nobility um he was not french he was corsican uh he couldn't speak the french language and up until even when he and he was a voracious reader but he didn't he kind of had that a uh, uh, very uh uh, a, a localized wisdom, so to speak, like he read a lot, but he had, i mean even when he was speaking to uh, to different dignitaries and to even people like Goethe, like you know one of the primary philosophers of of Germany and uh, he still couldn't read or 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 even write in French. his accent never really changed even after his old age, he was constantly bullied when he was young um and there are some and and he used to write down everything about his life and there was this one incident i remember reading about him when he goes uh, to to pick up a woman from the from the from from the lower parts of the city and napoleon being napoleon he writes it all down <laughs> and and he mentions that this is the third time that he was actually successful in picking someone up and 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 it kind of like <laughs> and it kind of like you know puts a damper on the idea that he was great in, in certain ways. Like he was really socially awkward in a way, and that kind of like explains <laughs> parts of his parts of his character. But broadly, he was uh, for the for the for the listeners. He was uh, born in a in a very uh, minor nobility of dubious nobility in some ways. Like uh, there are questions whether they were really noble technically or they just like landlords and landowners, which were rich and powerful but they were not classically like noble they didn't have that aristocratic blood um and it's part of the reasons why as you would we would discuss it, even in the in the course of these two episodes one of the reasons why he was hated a lot by a lot of people even though he was doing them a lot of good and he couldn't really rely on people like uh who are, who are like true blood because he didn't trust them either he had to put his own own brothers and sisters and all those people uh, in positions of power because no one trusted him, and he didn't trust anyone. It was a it was a very stifled society in, in that in that kind of Europe, uh, European um, you know nobility. Um, but he was born, and then uh, to moving like we, we kind of covered most of the French Revolution in the last episode. Um, but mostly, he was an officer. He was, a Corsican nationalist up until very late in his life. Uh, he wanted to have like an independent, uh, you know, uh, states of Italy, and he. After a long time moving to France, and when he realized that his ambition lies in Paris, only then he sort of changed his name and the spelling of his name and started to to have a more more French idea. of Because he thought France to be a a maximizer of his own power in a way. But uh, he moved to France, and at that point of time, the revolution was facing lots of troubles uh in the east they were facing wars and they were facing revolutions and reaction uh, in, in in the west in the Vendée, and uh and there were parts of paris which were completely out, you know out of control and that's where napoleon uh essentially comes to power
0: yeah absolutely and of course he, he is kind of a, a minor league french officer in the military the kind of pre-revolutionary military he He's one of the Jacobins, I think, that to a certain extent that that helped him and, and helped him along in his career, um, and really starts to make a name for himself, especially in the campaigns that take place in Italy at the time. Of course, during the French Revolution, France decided that not only are there, is their society going to be gripped by revolution, but they had to start a war with several countries while this is happening. So um, they, they were certainly biting off a lot more than they could chew at the time, and among the great powers there at war with was, was Austria, and of course several, at the time Italy was not a nationalized country, there were several uh, Italian kingdoms uh, also involved, but it was, it was essentially, this is, this is the campaign where Napoleon started to demonstrate that his skills as an officer uh, were quite considerable. In fact, they oftentimes outstripped the men who were much older than himself. And uh, demonstrated, of course, on the battlefield and certainly in his organizational skills uh, that he was a, a cut above the average. I mean, this is this is when he's still in his early 20s. Uh, he's actually promoted at some point to the to the rank of general, fairly high, <laughs> a very high rank uh, in, in the French military. But not necessarily one that that you want if you're going to have a long life, because, of course, many revolutionary uh, members of the military ended up getting their their heads chopped off and removed very quickly uh, under this revolutionary regime. Um, but it seems like he really distinguished himself fast and had a lot of powerful friends uh, in Paris, which helped him along his way. And I think that's something, too, is that people recognized very early that if you want something to get done and if you want to succeed uh, in battle and other things, that Napoleon was a man who would always be able to step into the breach and had enormous ability to get them done, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, I I, I agree. I mean, I, I sort of I, I always question myself, and this is the, I mean, Napoleon is one of the one of the characters, basically, that you cannot really reach a conclusion even after like no matter how many times you read, because you know you have to think about. First of all, I I genuinely question how much he was uh, a card carrying jacobine like he obviously joined the Jacobin movement but he had very contradictory ideas about about equality i think i think the best way for the modern listeners uh, in my opinion and of course you jared absolutely you, you you can and should disagree if you if you feel like but i think napoleon was one of the first populists in in the modern in our modern system like this is how i see him in a way so on in one hand he had these ideas about equality and that people and, and meritocracy, Napoleon was noted uh, to be a meritocracy, you know, uh, someone who who really talks a lot about meritocracy, like someone can come up from a very small background, but if he, you know, serves the empire or the republic, he always used to interchange that, and at the end of the day, he just made it to an emperor anyway. But, so he was a meritocrat. He didn't really believe in the power of the people or, or democracy, but he constantly used them. Uh, so, so, in a brief linear way, to see Napoleon's career. So initially, he was a Corsican nationalist, and then he thought that Jacobinism would help in Corsican nationalism and and uh, you know some of the Italian states. Goes to France, takes power. At that point of time, the Directory was absolutely reeling from various sorts of disorder, and he was overall demoted originally, um, you know, because you know he wasn't that good or smart, you know, when he was talking to other people and France was a very stifled kind of, you know, place. Um, so he was demoted. But then because he was an officer and there was this royalist, uh, you know, bloodbath that was going on in the streets of the streets of Paris, someone told him that, you know, if you have to restore peace, uh, what will you do? So he had this two brilliant idea and that he kind of like continued on that, on those two ideas uh, throughout his career up until the, to the point where he even started losing because of those two ideas. So broadly, he realized that he has to be very sharp and mobile, Like he has to constantly move around with his troops. So that was one of his primary ideas. Up, up until that point of time, if anyone studies military history, military solutions to European problems was very determined and fixed. They had very determined tactics. They move two paces to the front, turn right, sit down, shoot, Go up, move. You know, it's a very structured way. Napoleon, for the first time, realized that, you know, those things cannot be First of all, urban warfare, you know, you're fighting royalist forces in the streets of the city. This is not just sacking after a long siege. This is face-to-face, you know, combat between blocks and different blocks. So what he realized is you have to be very agile. You have to move really fast, and you have to, like, get troops who can move really fast. And second, he understood that he needs to use artillery. Uh, in a way that before that no one really thought about, it. like he, he could he could place like two or three pieces of artillery and use it to devastating, you know, um, results. So he did that, and because he was there to you know, restore order, it kind of like turns to a, a figure like Caesar, Julius Caesar, for example. Who Napoleon always like looked up to. Like he was given a choice. As, I mean, he chose Alexander, but because he had this absurd fascination of conquering the East and Egypt. Um, but, but but in a funny way, his his, his primary, you know, if, if you have to compare someone in history, he would be very close to Caesar. You know, he was that kind of guy who was like, I'm restoring order. I don't really want to take power, but I also really want to take power and show the people that I'm better than them. You know, all these patrician senators and people in Paris who are like from true blood, bloodline, and I'm better than them because I come from a very small town mentality family. But on the other hand, he says that he claims to be a Jacobin, but but then he was also like really prude about <laughs> about French social life. So I'm I'm kind of curious as to what do you think about how you would categorize Napoleon as a character anyway. You
0: know, you know it's funny because to a certain extent, you know, he's this great military genius, you know, as people define him. But I think his genius was actually putting together a lot of trends that were happening kind of at the same time. I mean, a lot of these developments is, you know, obviously the kind of nationalist spirit that was taking place in France gave them the kind of manpower and gave them the, the kind of numbers that he would need. Developments, of course, as you said, in artillery technology. Uh, he, I think Napoleon actually weirdly in a certain way, if you're going to compare him to history, somebody in history, weirdly, I'd say it'd be somebody like a Steve Jobs. In the sense that Steve Jobs, when he created the iPhone, took many separate technologies that had already existed and put them together in one device that, that obviously changed the world to a certain extent. And I think Napoleon was similar in the sense that he took advantage of many trends that were happening at once. He did have, I think, ample administrative abilities and put them together to create an army that when it when he began uh, – really couldn't be beaten by the professional armies of Europe. I mean, armies tended to be small professional forces. They were – I mean, this is going off of an old model of how to run a military. The the vaunted Prussian military of that time couldn't keep up with the national military that France was building in sheer numbers and tactics – and you're right that napoleon used the kind of given mean, his early uh, successes didn't come with brilliant you know tactics you know left right on the battlefield i mean the french military in the early revolutionary period was basically like a giant mob i mean the tactics were actually very simple um, what he was able to do was was able to mobilize that mob better and of course developed over time into a more professional military um, but I think Napoleon, his real genius was in taking these many developments happening at once that he really didn't have anything to do with, and having, of course, the the blessing of having the, a country that had the largest manpower reserves and in, in all of Europe, a country that was filled with uh, with revolutionary fervor was was a very kind of uh, you know a country was filled with a lot of energy and, and ambition. Uh, and he put those things together and, of course, had also – when you talk about the, the, the luck of Napoleon, certainly in his early days, uh, had the advantage that he went against armies that were led by some older generals, especially the Austrian military that was not very dynamic, uh, in which they were trounced by a younger, more dynamic man and, a, and, a, and tactics and doctrine that would define the next stage of battle uh, that they hadn't developed yet. So some of his early battles are absolutely stunning victories. Um, in which he clobbers forces that are, in some cases, many times larger than his own army. But, of course, Napoleon was smart enough to know that, well, I, if, if, we, if his army is larger than mine, I don't want to face his entire army. I want to face a smaller part of that army, which, of course, you know, comes to his doctrine of, of divide and conquer, which was, he was very good at, which is move your forces very quickly, destroy one part of the enemy's army, and then finish off the rest of the enemy's army when you have an advantage in both. And and he did that very well, and for you know for a short time, I think that there was there was no army in Europe that, that can compete, and I I do think, uh, in that sense, you have to recognize his his genius, you could say, as a general, and seeing that he was to a certain extent a step ahead of anybody else uh, in his generation for a time.
1: I think you raised two very important points in that in that statement. One. Um I don't think there was anyone before Napoleon who actually nationalized the fighting force. So, I mean, this was one of the things which, you know, the Austrians kind of like got baffled about, like, you know, armies were usually like small, very structured forces and, you know, and then they meet each other in the battlefield and whoever wins, you know, so Napoleon in a way kind of like changed that and Nelson, by the way, on the other side, but we're going to talk about Nelson later on anyway, but Nelson also changed that in the, in the Naval tactics. Like before that, it was a very different way of sea warfare and Nelson just came and changed that. Um, but no one nationalized a fighting force the way napoleon did part of the reason was because he didn't have the orthodoxy of of the traditional upper class european nobility who used to think in a very similar way go to the same schools learn the same tactics and you know and just it's kind of like chess chess game to them like you just put their pawns in the battlefield and see which which one wins without any but napoleon just changed all that you know he kind of like you're right, France was already revolutionary. You know, they were already fighting um, multiple battles. And, you know, and because it was a country of almost 28 million, 30 million people, and the largest power in Europe, they had answers amb- to draw from. And, uh, and so that's one thing. And the second thing is, I think, part of that, and I don't know, I, I, I want to know your opinion about that. One of the reasons why Napoleon's army was so vicious was because he essentially opened up the gates of prisons and had a whole bunch of miscreants, you know. who Was just uh, they had nowhere to go back to. You know, this is this is, <laughs> this is what they call the 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 lock of the thugs in a way. You know, you just you just have <laughs> you, you have a whole bunch of people who would essentially be executed. Um, and Napoleon tells them that hey, you know, that's the enemy, and everything that that's on the other side is just yours. And obviously, they're going to fight in a way that no one else would. Um, I think it was Metternich who said that, like, you know, Napoleon goes to war, 300,000 people uh, goes with them. If they die, someone else comes and replaces them. But on the other side, if 3,000 dies, no one is there to replace. And I think, I think that's a fact because no one would want to die in that way. You know, there is nothing to lose.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I think it actually kind of makes sense that people who ended up in prison for various violent crimes would in some cases make actually for good soldiers – I mean, if, yeah. if, if if there's a fine line, you know, between that, of course, it's that that attitude of uh, aggression, risk-taking right. that are oftentimes good on a battlefield, maybe not good when you're, you know, in normal life and you're trying to run a business or trying to be a well-behaved citizen. Uh, but if you're trying to kill the people in front of you, uh, that's actually, that can actually be a positive. And I think you're right that when you're talking about mobilizing the manpower of, of France, which, you know, transition from being a kingdom to a nation. I mean, a real like modern nation. Uh, I think that made a huge difference. I was obviously a difference maker on a number of battlefields where France was able to call up uh, simply more soldiers than, than the other side could. And of course, as Napoleon's campaigns continued and as he continued to win victories, um, had other nations fighting alongside him too, and and mobilize sort of the people of Europe. And funny enough, created some of that nationalism that didn't exist before in europe uh which existed after which may have you know even you know you know you talk about planting the seeds of your own downfall to a certain extent created that national mentality in the various nations of europe that started to recognize this and have their own national identities that were built up during the napoleonic wars and i think that that's what's really interesting the france got there first uh by the end of it Everybody else had been catching up, and you can definitely see that, of course, with this eventual fall, where these various nations rose up against him, and as soon as they saw weakness, as soon as they saw blood in the water, turned on Napoleon and, and led to his, his defeats.
1: So I think you would agree that the, if we have to divide Napoleon's life and campaigns into various pivot points, I think one of the pivot points absolutely would be Egypt, So, for the listeners, could you could you lay out like what led to the Egypt campaign, and you know up until that point, what was Napoleon doing?
0: You know, it's funny because you talk about his kind of obsession with the East. At one point, early on in his career, he actually tried to leave the French military and join the Turkish Join the Ottomans, yeah. Yeah. And join the Ottomans, which is one of those, of course, you know, one of those counterfactuals of history. Well, what if they had actually granted his request and he had fought for the Ottomans? What do you, How would that have turned out? So I think part of this has to do with, you know, especially after his victories uh, in Italy, turning to the East essentially and turning to kind of the, the wealth of the East and the, the promise of glorious conquest. And I think to a certain extent, the way France had been at that point, you know, this has been a time just this was after the, the Thermidorian reaction in France. This was after a time of revolution. I think France was ready to do great things in the world, so to speak. And I think turning toward the East, turning toward Egypt, especially as the British Navy at this point was was very stretched. The French Navy, of course, was never able to match the British Navy uh, either in quantity or quality. But it was stretched very thin at this point. And so Napoleon decided to essentially shuttle off quickly uh, and start a campaign in Egypt, fighting, of course, the Ottomans and tearing his way uh, through Egypt in in a series of, of course, had a series of spectacular battles, including one uh, that took place right in the shadow of the pyramids. Um, Had a number of spectacular victories in Egypt before being, I think, cut off, actually, uh, in Egypt. And, of course, the dramatic triumph of of, uh, uh, Horatio Nelson at a great naval battle that took place very close by Egypt and leaving his army basically stranded uh, in a foreign land. He could win all the victories, as usual. He could win on land, but when the British Navy was involved, uh, he quickly found himself cut off uh, in a difficult position. They were eventually able to make their way back to uh, the continent, but I think that his grand designs, of course, Came to nothing. But, you know, I think we discussed a little before this episode how some of his reputation um, as maybe more of not just a great man, but a tyrant really started in the Egyptian campaigns and how he treated people there and sort of his his attitude and demeanor and how his army behaved uh, in Egypt kind of led to his reputation. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think uh, two of the things that he mentioned is very interesting. Uh, one, he wanted to join the Ottomans. Um, we obviously have to do like a whole episode on the, uh, the fascinating history of the Ottoman Empire, you know, right from the start. But interestingly, uh, and, and this is very brief, but interestingly, the late-stage Ottomans were very European in their outlook. They were extremely liberal. They were very multicultural, really multicultural. Like They, <laughs> they stretched... From almost like from Bosnia to, to to Syria to you know parts of almost to the borders of Persia, so um, so they were very multicultural and, and also um, they were very mellow, like their 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 social you know Puritanism kind of like died down before anyway. So it was you know Byron was fascinated by uh, by the Ottomans, uh, Napoleon obviously. Uh, so Egypt, obviously, you know, as it was a very precious land with lots of, you know, it, it was a food bowl of Europe in a way. Um, and uh, Napoleon's idea was, and the French idea at that point of time was not just conquest of Egypt for the money and for the riches and for the food, uh, because they were like, you know, they were surrounded by enemies at that point of time. Um, and after the Thermidorian reaction, as you as you mentioned, but also to cut off the British Navy, essentially divide British Empire into two halves between India and uh, the Eastern Empire and, and the European Empire. Um, and Napoleon wanted to do that, but you're right, he couldn't really match up to the naval power that, or the naval experience of the Royal Navy. So what happened is, you know, it, it's that famous uh, defeat in the Nile. You know, when Napoleon's forces, naval forces were completely destroyed, Lorient, which was like the pride of the of the French Navy, was destroyed. And there were like beautiful poems, by the way, written on, on, on that by the British poets in in a way. Like there was this, I'm sure like anyone who studied literature would know, like the, the Capablanca, the, the kid who was standing on the deck when the, because his father told him to stand on the, to wait on the deck till he comes back. And his father died, obviously, because of the bombardment. And he was still standing on the burning deck of the ship when the ship went down. It's absolutely, you know, beautiful. But uh, the Napoleon's Navy, you know, Napoleon's Navy lost. The French Navy lost to the Brit- to the Brits. And then he came to know that on one hand, the Republic is facing a lot of problems of law and order, so he has to go back. Um, and secondly, um, the, he he won't be able to conquer anymore because he has got like thirty thousand troops or something like that. So he let his troops riot and arson, and that was essentially where his the, the idea. I mean, obviously, the British kind of like capitalized on that um, on Napoleon's brutality, like in, in Jaffa, uh, for example. Uh, French troops essentially went completely out of control, and they murdered um, women and children, and and Napoleon didn't really care. Like he, I mean, he uh, some might argue that he had no way to control the troops anyway. Um, but that's by others might argue that it was specifically uh, under Napoleon's command. Uh, but sooner or later, that was the, that was a reason why the British started to call him a tyrant and, you know, started to say like, Hey, this is what's in store for the rest of Europe. So, so the British French rivalry at that point of time was geopolitical, but obviously, you know, rhetoric plays an important part.
0: I think it's important. I think, especially at this point to talk a little bit about that, that rivalry, because, Throughout the the wars of Napoleon, Napoleon has, of course, always one real competitor, which is Great Britain. I mean, I think that throughout the Napoleonic Wars, of course, Austria, Prussia, there were other competitors, but Great Britain was kind of always there to stand in the way. And in fact, Great Britain oftentimes was outright subsidizing many of his competitors on the continent. Can you kind of talk about the kind of british attitude toward napoleon and, and the french revolution how they behaved during these wars and why they they put up such a ferocious defense against napoleon and and were relentless in trying to stop him can you kind of talk through that so the british
1: interest in the european continent since of the break with the with the Catholic uh, Church was fundamentally uh, of two reasons. One, it was theological that we don't we wouldn't want to be part of any um, European empire, regardless of who is leading that empire. We don't want to be a part of it. We are we are a we are a nation of we are a seafaring nation, you know, sea is our our you know domain and we don't we don't need anything to do with the with the continent as long as the continent is not ruled by one single flag or one single army. Uh, so that has been the British strategy for almost a greater part of 500 years to have like a disunited European continent. And that, in a way, kind of like continues up until to this day. Um, Napoleon, initially, so the French Revolution was obviously a shock to Britain. But also, uh, the British were really confused about what's going to come up from the revolution. On one hand, their major enemy, twice the size of Britain, by the way, um, uh, twice the GDP as well. Uh, is you know imploding uh, so that's that's a good thing but on the other hand they they're, they're also exporting their revolution to other parts of the, of the continent and uh, and to various parts of and that might lead to something uh, you know uh, dangerous for Britain so so Britain wanted to have uh, kind of like maintain a balance between having a regime in France which is not powerful enough, to challenge Britain, but also not powerful enough to export their own ideology and destabilize, in a way, the British interests in various parts of the world. It's part of the reason why, you know, Spain was considered to be an enemy, and but that was after Spain has lost its status as a great power. You know, it was a second power, power by, that, by that time anyway. But Spain was still considered to be an enemy, and Trafalgar was a joint, uh, you know, fleet. Uh, partly because of the reason, because, like, you know, we have that. There was this chain of of... Uh, British interests and British rocks in Gibraltar, in Egypt, in Aden, in India—you know, all that line of you know seafaring nations and 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 trade routes—and that needs to be maintained because that is essentially fundamentally the power of Britain. Uh, Napoleon himself, I, I the, the, interestingly, there were a lot of people in Britain who were rational and liberal. We have to understand that liberalism in those days were extremely pro-Napoleon. Um, and pro revolution across the continent. We kind of think of liberalism now as tyrannical force, but because they, you know, liberals are in power in most of the, you know, the, the fundamental order around the world is a liberal order. But in those days, the fundamental order around the world was a Christian theocratic reactionary order, and liberals were the, essentially the liberalizing force. Um, so a lot of Forward-thinking people, um, and this was again, Metternich was baffled by that as well. You know, his professors in college, for example, supported Napoleon. Um, Byron and all these people really, really liked Napoleon because to them, Napoleon was a, a was a force of liberation in a way. Um, even after, like, Napoleon became an emperor, there were still like uh, people trying to justify, uh, you know, a, a French Revolution and, and all the all the forces that it unleashed. So there were a significant number of people in Britain who were who were opposed to any kind of further entanglement with France. But obviously that didn't really work out because France essentially uh, started to threaten uh, British interests because Napoleon wanted to have like a trade war uh, with the UK.
0: Right. It's interesting how in the course of this really, I think, rivalry between Great Britain and France and what had happened in Europe and, of course, the kind of mobilization of the, the French military and the wars and stuff. I mean, we, we I mean, this really gets on the level of a series of, you can almost say, world wars. I mean, it's not like this was just contained in Europe. I mean, this is really something that had gone global. Of course, the Seven Years' War, or the French-Indian War in the United States, had been a precursor to this. Um, but this this affected people all, all over the globe, including in the, the new United States that I think had a lot of difficulty ascertaining sometimes, you know, whether to to stay neutral or or to choose a side in the conflict. And, you know, sometimes based on the decisions of leaders in Britain or France, the U.S. kind of wobbled back and forth, too, based on uh, what was happening there in the continent. I think there were serious implications for the U.S. at this time, including, I think, one of the more significant events in American history, which would be the Louisiana Purchase, um, during Napoleon's time, which I, I always think is very, I think the history of it is very interesting because I mean it is seen as one of the the the, the best deals in American history. After I mean, you get millions of square miles basically. Can you tell the readers why thing. it happened? Yeah, and I think this is actually one of the most interesting part of this because it was very. I mean, really, I mean, I think the, the purchase was something around uh, fourteen million francs. It was not. As far as what we were actually, the United States was actually getting, uh, it seems like a very low price. Um, yeah. But it really stems, actually, and I think this is only seeing it from the American side. From the French side, you know, why were they why were they selling this massive amount of territory in the American West? Well, I think Napoleon had a very good reason to sell it because I think he understood that again, partially because of the power of the British Navy. There was no way for France to project power in the Americas in the way that he would wish to. There was always going to be difficulty challenging the British Navy. Holding on to that territory was going to be extremely difficult, even under the best of circumstances. Um, the French didn't have very good success in, in a lot of their engagements in the Americas. And so, especially given the the challenges that were happening on the continent at the time, the wars uh, of the Second and Third Coalition France needed money. They they were focused very strongly on the European continent to sell this huge amount of vast territory to what could be seen as one of the chief rivals of Great Britain in in North America was actually a smart move because no longer, A, do they have to actually guard or keep the territory. They no longer have to post troops. They no longer have to stop. But now they just gave that territory to a rival of the British. Uh, that will be hostile to any uh, british attempts to take it back and so i would actually say and of course they got they got paid they got money uh and resources at the end of this so i would actually say it was it was a smart deal uh from both sides of this equation obviously long term paid off enormously for the young united states where it was really the largest exchange of land in history not that didn't take place because of a war it was just a straight-up purchase of land that of course, boosted uh, the United States enormously. And of course, Americans uh, flowed into those territories. Um, but it was actually a smart move by Napoleon. It was a, a kind of his strategic thinking uh, on, on the vast you know, chessboard, the global chessboard, that this is a way to make something out of this uh, and put this territory in the hands of a rival. Of course, the British never even – they never recognized the, the, the Louisiana Purchase as being legitimate because of uh, how this the, the territory was gotten from originally the Spanish, um, which caused problems for the U.S. later. Um, but I think it was actually a, a pretty clever stroke by Napoleon uh, to kind of use this land in a smart way that would help him win his wars on the continent.
1: He also tried to reach out to a, to a whole bunch of uh, – uh, Southern Indian princes who were opposed to Britain, like Tipu Sultan, for example, was one of the major rivals and one of the biggest powers of South India, who was getting funding from both the Ottomans and the French. But obviously that kind of got destroyed once France, you know, went on a rampage in Egypt. Um but and, and Britain kind of like won the entirety of the South India with the three corn ca- campaigns. Um, but um, Napoleon almost thought that he would he would reach out to some of the southern Indian princes and kind of uh, kind of push Britain out of India. But he obviously his naval losses in the Nile um, led to that, you know, the destruction of that plan. This is so what led to the trade war? I mean, how do we broadly define was that Napoleon's domestic politics? Was that a reason because of his nationalization of, 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 of economy? Like one, what was the need for the trade protectionism, and two, whether it was geopolitical or whether it was economic? What do you think?
0: Yeah, a little, a little of both. I mean, it's it's interesting. Of course, this happens. I believe he, Napoleon kind of carries out his so-called Continental System, and I believe this takes place yeah. just after the the Battle of Austerlitz, which was a brilliant victory that that took right. place uh, over the combined russian and austrian forces and so suddenly napoleon after this i mean maybe one of the greatest battles in human history i mean really incredible victory um is the master of europe Uh, has has unified europe essentially under the flag of revolutionary france um but what's left behind there's great britain and russia which is interesting of course uh maybe a little foreshadowing of, of something in the future um but Britain still needs to be dealt with because, of course, Britain had this enormous overseas trade empire. I mean, he, th- this, is, this is the lifeblood uh, of the British Empire. And, of course, Napoleon saw this as, as their benefit, as the, the, the reason that they were able to counter the French, despite the fact that the British had a much smaller uh, population, uh, certainly could not have maybe on the surface competed with the you know the entire economy of Europe, and so it creates this kind of continental system to cut off uh, trade to Great Britain, to continental Europe, uh, and essentially put a, a, an economic wall uh, in between uh, the so-called uh, continental system. In fact, he tried to develop a number of domestic industries. There was one in particular where he tried to create the, the sugar beet industry to compete with uh, the British uh, sugar cane. Uh, that didn't actually work out very well. I think what's interesting, of course, is at this time is you have the the first buds of the Industrial Revolution happening, which have has hit the British before it has hit the French. That the, the the beginnings of this kind of industrial transformation that, of course, transforms the whole world. The British were really ahead in that game. While France again had a larger population, uh, large parts of France were still extremely agricultural. They couldn't actually, I think, compete economically with the British. I think man for man, and I, I to a large yeah. extent, the, the fact that Napoleon cut off trade to Britain in the in the long term. Um, didn't actually hurt Britain nearly as much as he thought it would. In fact, I would actually say in large part, the, the French economy ultimately suffered uh, very much in this system, which I think is is pretty shocking. Um, and it was not a way to bring down, the, the lay low the British Empire. They simply found new markets and, of course, had that, that, that navy that could still protect their trade. I mean, as much as Napoleon tried to create a navy that could compete uh, with the British navy, but by simply the long-term experience the, the the ability of their captains and officers and of course the british ships um they couldn't compete on that end even when when in direct confrontation even when when the british the french navy by numbers was actually getting close especially when you combine with the spanish navy which were for a time their allies they simply couldn't compete with that so the british were actually able to hold down the empire uh, even despite the economic, you know, the strangulation, what they thought it would be, the strangulation of the British Empire, it didn't actually turn out that way.
1: Yeah, and they also couldn't control the entirety of the European continent either. I mean, one of the reasons why Russia was kind of antagonized, and so was Prussia and Austria, was not just because Austria lost twice to Napoleon's army, but also no one really liked his 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 idea of trade and kind of like this this real upstart coming from nowhere and just like dictating terms to, to this old houses and how they're going to do their own trade. Uh, and, and especially to houses who have by, you know, because of that, of, of being a noble, you know, European house, they have like blood ties with, with Russians and, and British. So, you know, they were like married, for example, someone in, in an Austrian nobility is married to someone in, in Britain and Napoleon is just coming and telling them not to do stuff or lead uh, a certain way of life. Uh, so that's one thing. Second, I, we kind of like, you know, since you mentioned the fact that, uh, you know, trade and, you know, uh, engineering and all these things were happening outside of the domain of Napoleon's control. Napoleon was one of the first guys who actually took, what, like a bunch of scientists and geographers and all those people to, to Egypt, you know, during his campaign. I think mean, that was one of the, you know, one, one, of the, one of the reasons why he's considered to be great is because... Uh, archaeologists and and you know he, he formed a comedy of of the greatest minds of France to actually accompany him in his campaigns uh, in the East and they go and they discover pyramids and they do research and that's uh, that was a pretty modern outlook for a for a guy who's just uh, came out of nowhere.
0: You know, it's interesting. He he did always have and and maybe this is he's a product of you could say the enlightenment the revolution this kind of fascination yeah. with science and learning i mean that that was i mean i talk about in the, the time of napoleon's fall he actually thought about well you know maybe i'll i'll become a scientist after he's defeated i mean i i think that that's very much part yeah. of his outlook and this is you know you can kind of see how the west is transforming he's very much a product of that he has this interest where the west is is the, the civilization that quickly embraced science and reason and learning and uh obviously a lot of the develop the economic and military developments also flowed from that as well so it it makes perfect sense and we're not i mean it's just not just in the the element of of war and military um i i think in other domains as well i mean this is the look the, i mean the revolution had a huge amount of impact on the world and the outlook of people both you know you could say in positive and negative ways i think this was part of it so Yes. I mean, I think he, he definitely pushed this idea of science. He pushed this idea of modernizing law. I think that was a huge part of this. I mean, uh, the Napoleonic Code, and I think you know we should briefly mention that. Yes. Um, Napoleon really wanted to regular, regularize laws in Europe and develop the system, the Napoleonic Code, which, um, it, it, funny enough, is actually still used in Louisiana today. Yeah. Elements of the old Napoleonic Code. Uh, But it kind of gets to this idea of Napoleon, not just as the brilliant general, but also the man of science, the lawgiver. You know, he's checking these boxes of maybe what you could say, you know, going back to our idea of the great man of history. You know, he's giving to modern Europe this 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 new system as as the great emperor of Europe. Um, And that includes not just, you know, prosperity and wealth, but but law and a legal system and uh, a real modern system. Uh, And that's that's part of his legacy, too. I mean, obviously, the Napoleonic Code, I think it still has some sway in some countries in Europe today. And it's kind of the basis of the legal system, not just in France, but all over Europe. And that's it leaves an impressive record.
1: And that also took over power from the from the land holding uh, noble class, didn't it? Like it's one of the reasons why a a lot of people like hated, especially in the in the south central Europe, was because, you know, he changed the, the entire power dynamic between the serfs and the lords.
0: Yes, and that's that's one of the interesting aspects of Napoleonic Code is that it it changes the inheritance laws. It it forces people right. to essentially give up uh, in the inheritance instead of just going to the firstborn son, it would be divided up equally among children, and that was a big deal at the time. I mean, yeah. how land is transferred. I mean, that's a part the, the nobility uh, of Europe. I mean, it was created through this idea of transferring land to the firstborn sons. I mean, to a certain extent, you know, in in America, the existence of the United States, and partially, especially in the southern colonies, is because of the system was, uh, even in England, quite, you could say, oppressive, that the second-born sons of aristocracy didn't have much to do, so they they go to America and make a name for themselves and build something. And, of course, create a very different tradition uh, in the Americas that was not feudalistic. But throughout much of Europe, through the old world, that system was still very much in place. And so Napoleon, you know, sort of through the law, cut the Gordian knot of, a, of an old kind of feudal system, uh, and as you said, you know, he was always very much attached to this idea of um, meritocracy and the idea that a, a man a man of talent and ambition should be able to rise in society, and that'll make us stronger uh, as a society, and he, he clearly showed that in the people that he surrounded himself with and in in his actions, and, and, and as, you know, we talk about giving advantages to the French military all these things developing and this this did help that the French military a lot of the great commanders and the great marshals of France were men who came from backgrounds that were not elite aristocratic backgrounds they were much more what you could consider i mean you could say middle and lower classes um but through showing through their talent and ambition were able to succeed uh in that system and so those forces were unleashed by Napoleon and by the wars too there's no question
1: yeah, you, you're right. He absolutely broke the back of, of the feudal system. Part of the reason why it kind of like ties out to the to the idea that he was sort of like a populist um in, in his own record. Um so before like we, um we have to divide it into two, two episodes, and uh, uh we, we we kind of like already there's just so much to cover. Um so he he. He lost in Trafalgar. Um, his, his navy was decimated in the Nile and then Nelson changed the game of, of the rule. And one of the reasons we're doing this podcast in English and not French is because <laughs> Napoleon's global ambition was destroyed in 1805, um, where Nelson essentially changed the, the game by running headlong with his entire fleet in the middle like and just uh, just breaking up uh, the Franco-Spanish navy. Um, but Napoleon then went and did a weird thing where he proclaimed himself emperor um, by by public opinion by vote. so he was essentially a consul for life and then he was elected a consul for life and then he was elected a king where he goes and proclaims this does this huge thing about like I found you know the French crown in the gutter and took it because France deserved. All that kind of stuff, and he restores the Catholic rights, and he and he puts the crown on Josephine. Uh, so, what do you what do you think of of this <laughs> this this random change from a Jacobin to to the the uh, like emperor? It, it, it's actually
0: an interesting moment because, of course, he puts the crown on his own head, unlike Charlemagne, um, yeah. who receives the crown from from the Pope. Um, it shows the changing dynamic, I think, between the kind of secular and religious. And unlike you know previous centuries in which there was a deference to the church, even even with the great kingdoms and great conquerors, there was deference to the church and a necessary one. That something had definitely shifted in Europe, and this again, it's, you know, very much a product of the revolution. Um, that Napoleon puts the crown on his own head, he declares declares himself, I am I am the emperor. You you can't you can't grant this to me. You know, I took this. Uh, because of my talent and ambition and my my success, and so I think there is a little bit of an element. To that. Of course, it is interesting, you know, going back to the original reasons for the revolution. You know, this idea of of liberty and 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 destroying all these these various class power in society and the the, the aristocracy. How you end up after this with a man who actually, in some ways, has far greater arbitrary power than any of the kings of Europe before then. I mean Napoleon and just sheer power was way beyond anything in in the ancient regime. Uh you know including the 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 man who they chopped the head off Louis the 16th never dreamed of of wielding the kind of power that Napoleon did. And in some ways many of the liberties that they had fought for by the end of the war were absolutely gone. They were a more tyrannical society at the end of this than they had been before and I I think it's an interesting thing you, know, you talk about the revolution and what it meant, how it, it goes from the resentment, this kind of class resentment, the societal resentment, this le- being led by these intellectuals who have all these utopian dreams for society, through the bloodshed and anarchy of the revolution, where eventually the, the people themselves demand order be restored and eventually put in charge a, a military chieftain, a Caesar, uh, to lead their new regime. And they embraced it. They they, they welcomed uh, their their new overlord uh, with open arms in many cases,
1: and so I, you, I think that that go ahead. No, no, I, I was I was just going to ask you. So, isn't that an interesting parallel to to um, quite literally uh, a, a strongman politics that we see in our times? Like you know, people essentially aspire for. A strong man to come and drain the swamp, so to speak. You know, so Napoleon, in a way, in a funny way, like both Caesar and Napoleon, and and a lot of you know South American dictators, they are they are fundamentally elected. They're they're products of, I mean, yes, of 28 million people of France, three million could vote. Fair enough, but in those days, that's a lot. That's that's not like Harry power. But they essentially voted someone who they saw uh is from somewhat of a lower background than compared to the lords who ruled over them and they wanted to put him in power to kind of like show it to the to the elite of their times.
0: You know, it it makes sense and it makes sense for where France was as a society at that time. I mean, I think you know, I think it's important to make that kind of comparison. I think it's one that will be made and should be made, you know, what was happening in France versus what was happening in the United States and very different trends for for two different societies. I mean, You have, in one sense, Napoleon who steps into the order and chaos of Europe, of a society that, in the case of France, they they certainly wanted liberty, but everything in in their background and character showed that, frankly, they were very unprepared for the kind of self-government that came to many Americans quite naturally through a very long tradition of self-government. And so the idea of Napoleon as a new Caesar made a lot more logical sense to the people of France than, than George Washington becoming a Caesar because Washington was leading Americans, not the French. People who, frankly, if George Washington had grabbed a crown and put it on his head, uh, I think uh, Americans would have, would have thrown him out on his behind. I mean, I, I think that as much as he was beloved, um, it was a society that was, um, that was used to self-government, that was used to, to liberty, I ordered liberty in, I think, a real sense. And so to a certain extent, Napoleon fit the, the French revolutionary regime of the time in the way that George Washington fit the American society of the time. And, of course, took the steps to ensure that the system that was created uh, following him uh, was not dependent on on the great man of history, that, that you would have a constitutional system, which Washington would be the father of his country, uh, one that would be led by a great constitution, but not necessarily uh, – Wouldn't necessarily need the the great man like a George Washington to step in and ensure that liberty uh, would survive. And so, especially from the perspective of Americans seeing what was happening as revolutionary France turned into essentially a dictatorship, uh, it became a warning because. Yes, maybe this was a necessary thing to stop anarchy, and I think in many ways it was. Would you rather yeah. have Napoleon or yeah. Robespierre running your country? And the answer is, for most French, and I think most reasonable people, that would, the answer would be the same. You would want Napoleon over or, over somebody like uh, Robespierre. It does show that you know once you do have something along the lines of order, liberty, and self government, how precious and fragile a thing uh, that really is. Uh, you know, people will oftentimes take tyranny. Over anarchy most of the Correct. time and in the in the u.s system we are very uh, fortunate that you had the seeds of what would be the a system of self-government a constitutional system you know that was that was Washington's revolution which was very different uh, from Napoleon's which reflected the attitudes of those societies
1: yeah I think I think you're absolutely right I mean bonapartism is something which a lot of people, you know, demand because of anarchy around, and that's part of the reason. It's kind of like a cycle in a way, like whether you cannot control the, the the order of the society, and then that kind of leads to a to a strongman. Um, but I think this is a good time to stop before we uh, we move on to the next episode. But this is what we think is almost like the peak of Napoleonic career and order, and there were rumblings in the east of 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 a breakage, and. Uh, and we should we should probably uh, probably discuss that in the, in the next one. what do you think
0: yeah, I think so. I think we stop it where Napoleon is essentially in control of all Europe. he's the master of the battlefield, his long term relationship or you could say short term really relationship with with Russia, which I mean kind of sealed the deal kind of created peace as always Napoleon started to anger uh, anger Russia and created this kind of he, he stepped and he made some political miscalculations that he hadn't hadn't before and stirring up the Russian bear uh, leading to his eventual marching of his armies uh, into Russia to teach him a lesson that that they eventually well I should say the Russian winter and the ferocity of of dealing with a, a, a vast land war uh, in in the Russian heartland can teach anyone a lesson <laughs> that has been taught a few times and and often hasn't been learned uh, but it's one that that Napoleon learned in, a, I think, a dramatic way. So I, I think this is this is a good point to stop as as Napoleon is about to march his armies uh, into Russia and uh, go from the from the highest of highs to the, the absolute lowest of lows. Yep. All right. Well, until next time, until the next episode when we discuss the fall of Napoleon.